So Exodus chapter 24. This is the word of God. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all of the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And he set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent the young Israelite men and offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as a fellowship offering to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls. The other half he sprinkled on the altar. He then took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here. I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his assistant. And Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you. And anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, 
and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. Six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain. He stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Can we turn then to that that passage that we we looked at? Uh, Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. There hasn't been much to enjoy in lockdown. It's been, I guess, by any degree of estimation, a pretty grim time, even for the most resilient of us. But I hope that all of us, to to some extent, can look back over what is uh, fast approaching now, the 12 months, and uh, say just in the ordinary things of life, the things that we've we've enjoyed, whether that's uh, time with family that, that would otherwise be taken up with, with work, whether it's time to think and, and to read. Well, one of the things that I've enjoyed uh, that I'd, I'd like to share with you is... Um, uh, certainly at the beginning of lockdown, for whatever reason, whether it was the news and stress or whatever the case is, but I, but I found reading quite difficult. So I thought I'd have a go at, at an audio book. I'll give audio books a try. Um, and I can go out on my walk and I can, I can listen to, to a book. And one of the ones I, uh, I got uh, was about... The Ascent of Everest. And it's mostly about uh, Edmund Hillary and Tenzin Norgay and the successful uh, attempt that they, they made in 1953. There was, however, another attempt before that in June 1924 by George Marley and Sandy Irvin. And it was the first attempted ascent of Everest. And they disappeared. Even to this day, the question of whether they actually got to the summit and were on their way back down remains unsettled. But it was Edmund Hillary himself who said, quite famously really, if you climb a mountain for the first time and die on the descent, is it really the first complete ascent of the mountain? And then he adds with uh, incredible understatement, uh, maybe marked of his generation at that time, He said, I'm rather inclined 
to think personally that maybe it's quite important, the getting down. In this passage, we have another ascent of a mountain. Far, far more dangerous, I would suggest, than Everest ever could be. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders from Israel are summoned to climb Mount Sinai. It's not just the getting up, but it's the coming back down as well that is significant. So let's let's look at this section together and, and try to Im- unpack it and to apply it to ourselves. God has given Moses the Ten Commandments back in chapter 20. And then in chapters 21 through to 23, there's a section of the book of Exodus which looks at the book of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. The particular circumstances of Israel's national life in a series of case law and a body of civil code laws. And then we have, and if you have a, an NIV, you'll, you'll see the, the heading given to the chapter. And then we have in chapter 24, something that's described as the covenant confirmed. The covenant confirmed. Now we've heard lots about covenants or agreements or treaties in the past couple of months. Um, In the negotiations that this country has been carrying out with the EU and the time was approaching where that agreement, that covenant had to be ratified by the parties involved and this is what happens here in chapter 24 of Exodus the covenant that God was making with Israel is ratified by the parties involved, God and his people, God and Israel. That's what's taking place in this chapter. So in the first verses, Moses is is given a commandment. Come up to the Lord. You and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel. And then Moses in verse 3 says this. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, 
they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Just as an aside to the main thrust of what we're saying about this this chapter. But even here in Exodus, it shows us the importance of the word of God. Scripture breathed out by God. You remember those words that you're all familiar with in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness. When we read the word of God, when we hear the word of God properly preached, it is the word of God addressing us in his glory, in his grace. And that's what Moses recognizes here. That's what the people recognize in response to what Moses says in relation to what God has told him. They hear God's speech in Scripture coming through them, and then they make this pledge of allegiance. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. That's the weight that they put upon what they hear. They commit themselves, they make an oath, They submit themselves and they obey God's word. It's a personal and a corporate promise of commitment. And then the the, the chapter moves on. And Moses builds an altar and carries out these sacrifices. The tribes of Israel are on the plains of the foot at the mountain. The altar represents the presence of God. Much as as the mountain is where the, the Lord dwells. The twelve pillars are the people of God assembled. Symbolic of God's own people. And then in verse 5, God sends out Moses, and Moses then sends out the young men to make sacrifices, burnt offerings, peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Look what happens to the, the blood. We saw the importance, didn't we, this morning of just one verse on, on blood, but But here there's more detail. Half the blood, notice, is collected in basins. And the other half is thrown against the altar. And then Moses says in verse 8, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these Words. What's going on there? What's happening? Well, blood sacrifice 
as we hinted at a little this morning, didn't go into a lot of detail, but we hinted at that blood sacrifice was the the mechanism by which symbolic atonement was made for sin. And the next bit is critical. Look what happens next. Half the blood is thrown against the altar. Half the blood is applied to the symbol of the presence of God. What does that teach us? What does that tell us? We reflected this morning that we live in an age where self, excuse me, I said, there's no glamorous way of doing that. <clears throat> oh, to have a cup of water back in the pulpit. We noted this morning that self is something that marks our age. We live in a very therapeutic age. What happens to us, what makes us feel good, what solves our problems is first and foremost. Well, that's not what the Bible says our problem is. The Bible doesn't say that first and foremost, primarily, the problem is ourselves. That we need to sort ourselves out. Primarily, the Bible says that we have to get right with God. Our first problem is not ourselves. Our first problem is our relationship with God. The fact that there is the holy wrath of God against us. The Bible calls it propitiation. It means a sacrifice that satisfies the holy wrath of God and the righteous condemnation of God against us. The anger of an almighty God against our disobedience and sin. Our first problem is Godward. We need, through God's mercy, to resolve that. That's the blood on the altar. Propitiation. And then secondly, secondly, importantly, but secondly, in relation to the order of things, it's then that the blood is applied to the people. Then it's cleansing. Then it's the sacrifice that deals with the guilt of sin in us have to hold both together if we are to understand the Bible's teaching on how we are to be put right with God. First and foremost, yes, we have a sin problem, but more importantly, it's that sin's problem effect upon our relationship with God. 
It's not all about us, you see. It's about God's righteous anger for our sins committed against him. But there is also, importantly and lovingly, that God deals with our sin issues within ourselves. He satisfies his justice and he cleanses us and atones for us. And that's what, what we're being shown in shadow and type here in this chapter. And there's no there's no sitting on the fence here. You're either in one camp or you're not in the camp. Mind, Paul tells us, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Still has that wrath of God burning against them. Once we were alienated and hostile in our means. In Colossians, Paul says friendship with the world is enmity with God. Can't have it both ways. You're either a child of God, reconciled to God by his grace, or you're his enemy. And by nature, a child of wrath. You have a profound God problem in your life. He is angry with you and with your sin, and that has to be dealt with. And we also have the sin problem. The reason for the righteous anger of God is our disobedience and our rebellious lives and hearts. The blood, symbolized here, satisfies the wrath of God and covers our sin and guilt in his sight. It's applied to the altar. It's applied to the people. The same sacrifice ends the enmity that we have with God and reconciles us to God. <coughs> and of course, what we're reading of here is just signs and symbols of the time when God's own son, when Jesus Christ would be that sacrifice for us. His blood would be applied in order that we may have peace with God and that our sin would be covered. We have reconciliation in Christ and in Christ alone. So within this uh, ceremony that uh, Moses and the leaders and Israel goes through, observes, is applied to them, that 
ceremony shows the great gospel significance of what was going, at this point in history, what was going to happen. What we look back to in relation to Jesus Christ. That he was going to come. That he was going to take on flesh. That he was going to die as the Lamb of God. That he was going to be the propitiation the satisfaction of God's anger and wrath against us for our sins. And that we would be justified by his grace through the redemption of Christ Jesus. This is is the, the, the burning heart of the gospel. Now, we're very familiar, aren't we, in, in Port Talbot? Of, uh, of, of molten steel lights up our skies every, every night. If you can drive down the, the bypass at certain times, well, you, you, you see the, these so-called torpedoes carrying molten steel, so hot that flames are, are flying out of the top. As they uh, transport the molten steel from the blast furnaces to the to the rest of the works and to the and to the mills. Now it may be, if you're uh, not living in Butolbert or, or, or you, you 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 don't see the works every day, although I guess most of us do, um, you may find the next thing quite strange. I quite like looking at the works. I think it's a thing of beauty at times night when it's all lit up, when you see the reflection in the sky of the, of the molten steel. But for all its technology, for all its cleverness, for all its beauty, maybe, it is nothing without that molten steel. Without that, it's worthless. It's not needed. It's redundant. And God has put the framework of the church and our fellowship together and the, uh, the order of services that we go through, the great history of the church, the great literature that we can read. But my friends, all that is useless. It is redundant. Without the molten steel of the gospel. It is just a framework. It is just a building. It is just a ceremony. But you have the molten heart of the Christian gospel in the morning of what, in in the middle of that of what Christ has done for us and what he has achieved and then you have a living power applied by the Holy Spirit into our lives. Center is always Jesus. You, you, you have to come to that, that position in Hebrews. Hebrews 12 verse 24. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. 
and to the sprinkled blood. You have to. There is no getting around it. You have to look to Jesus bearing the dreadful burden of your sin. You have to look to him standing in your stead, in your place, taking the judgment which you deserved upon himself. But what was rightfully ours, the wrath of God is satisfied by his sacrifice. It is Christ and him alone who's the sole foundation of our confidence. As much as we may enjoy coming together, as much as we may enjoy reading the word of God, singing hymns when we're able to, if you do not have Christ, if you are not resting solely upon him, you are still facing the wrath of God. Nothing else. Nothing else can give you peace with God. You need the blood of the Lamb. You need the blood of the covenant. You need propitiation to be received through faith in our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. The covenant here. The covenant between God and Christ and us is being ratified in symbol in this passage. But we have it as a living reality. And then what happens? What happens in the, in the wake of this uh, ceremony, of this covenant confirmed? Well, in verses 9 through to 18, we see that the, uh, the ceremony, the, the liturgy, is complete. The leaders obey the instructions. They climb the slopes of the mountain. And in verse 10, again, I'm, I'm, I've been, this year particularly, for some reason, in, in reading uh, Exodus, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the way small words, small phrases are almost just thrown in there. And yet they mean so much. Look at verse 10. And they saw God of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. How amazing is that? We know, we know, we, we know, and, and we, we know what's coming next if we're familiar with the with the book. We know in in Exodus thirty three and verse twenty, God says, "Nobody, nobody can see me and live." But through the propitiation, the symbol, the looking forward. The looking forward to the sacrifice of God himself. They see the God of Israel. How amazing is that? 
And if you're amazed by those words, then you should be amazed by what we are doing even this evening. Through the word of God, we see our God. We see the God of Israel. We can be for the living God, our Father of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Does that thrill you? There's only a few of us here. We're all separated out because of the restrictions. doesn't matter. We come to God through our Lord and Saviour and we see him in his word. We have the spirit of God within us which enables us. He enlivens us to come before God to commune with him, to commune with one another. The people of Israel here have fellowship, communion, intimacy in the presence of the Lord. Now, of course, there's there's two aspects to this. There, There is the aspect whereby we, we can and we're encouraged, aren't we? to to go into our closet and to daily commune with God. And I'm not belittling that for one moment. But it appears to me the, the, the more that you read the Bible and the more you, you, you go through it year after year. You know, if, if you if you if you put the um, as what's contained within the word of God, the instances where where individuals on their own solely met with God in one end of the scales, and then where the people of Israel or the church met with God, then that would tip the scales. God's way is dealing with us, yes, individually, but he promises to meet with us communally. See how vitally important this is. And they see his glory. And all of this, back in, in what we would now consider ancient history, points to a better covenant, points symbolically to Christ. Who mediates. Hebrews 8 verse 6 tells us that. The better covenant. These are just what we're reading of here. What the actions that we're reading of here. Are signs and shadows. It is Christ alone. Who mediates this better covenant. And what does John tell us in his gospel? What does he remind us of in in the first chapter? We have seen his glory. The glory as the of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace 
and truth. Goes on to say, doesn't he? No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We have fellowship with the living God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We have fellowship with him personally. We have fellowship with him corporately as his people, as he has commanded, gathers together. Does that thrill you? There's nothing cold and dry and formal about this. Remember the picture of of the steelworks? Can look lovely. You you can you can be in awe of it. Apply that to how maybe you view your walk with God. Maybe you do pray. Maybe it's a little cold and dry and formal and stiff. Maybe you read your Bible, but there's no enjoying it. Maybe you've given up. Maybe you've given up reading your Bible. Maybe you've given up praying because there's, you think there's no joy in it. You're going through the motions. There's little personal acquaintance with the power and the comfort of the grace that we find in Scripture. It may be the case. It may be the case that you've reversed the order. It may be the case that you're looking for communion with God. You know there's something not right. You know that it's not sitting well with you. You know there is an issue. But you're looking for communion with God without first having the blood of the covenant applied to you. You may think you're worshipping, but you haven't even been pardoned yet. You have the mere practice of Christianity and none of its power. Why why is that? What's the problem? The problem is that you haven't come to God through the cross of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The blood had to go on the altar. The blood had to go on the people. We need the blood of Christ applied to us. If we haven't, if we're not trusting in him alone, well, then it's not right. Blood has to be applied. We reflected, didn't we, last week that an empty exercise of religion is useless. And if that's your experience, can I beg of you, please stop. Please stop. 
What, what is the point of an exercise of just a formal religion? There is no more useless thing in the entire creation than just a formal religion. It's empty. It's useless. God will never allow you to climb into the mountain to get into his presence unless first and foremost on the plain atonement has been 